It is a privilege this morning to be with you and to be and to have the privilege of sharing the, the gospel and to open the word. I do want to encourage all of those who are Christian this morning. You know, as we walk in this life, there are challenges that we face. But know this, brothers and sisters, the time is short and heaven's ours and Christ has guaranteed our success and it won't be long, we'll be there. So the Bible in every way encourages encourages us with those words. And as you'll note, in First and Second Thessalonians, that's the theme. And it's to encourage the brethren that Paul shared this with them. And so we can take great encouragement from that as well this morning. Thessalonica. You know, whenever you mention a city, very often comes to your mind different things about it. If I say New York, there's some things that come to your mind. If I say Owensboro, since you're a part of it, there are things that are deeply embedded in the way in which you think. If I think, if I say Florida, most of the time, white sand and water come to your mind, right? All of these things are so. So what about when you hear the word Thessalonica? What comes to your mind as you hear that word? Well, the commentators would say of Thessalonica, it was the business center of Rome. So think of that. It was a town about the size of Evansville, but it was known for its business activity. It was critically situated. There was a port that was vital and there were roads that were critical to the transport of all types of products around the world from east to west. And so it was a place familiar with many, many different types of people. Many, many different types of uh, things would pass through there. People of wealth and importance in the Roman Empire found themselves in this place. Why are we reading two books with these two names? It's a good question, isn't it? It's because we well know that God sent a man named Paul, saved him on the road to Damascus and transported him around the world to preach the gospel. And it's recorded in Acts 17. And it's real important as we understand the letter. In Acts 17, Paul shows up having been persecuted in Philippi. You remember that story? There in the Philippian jail, persecuted, singing, praise, having put out, and it was Thessalonica that he came to next. You think it was the design or intention of Paul? Certainly it was. The vital centers of the world is where he wanted to preach the gospel. He wanted to preach it in Thessalonica. He knew from there it could be sounded out in many places around the world. So it was there he came and he went to the synagogue three Sabbath days in a row and the Bible says he did this. He reasoned with them according to the scriptures. And you'll note in these two books of the Bible, the scriptures are, are key. You'll note that in all of Paul's ministry, in all of the New Testament and Old, the scriptures are the key. If men would understand the gospel, it'll be because they understand the scripture, which is the recording of the gospel. So it was that with Paul reasoned with them in these three Sabbaths, and the Bible says this, some of the Jews were converted, many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. What must those days have been like? Well, recorded in 1 Thessalonians 1, it was much like what we have heard about in different places when a revival breaks out. Paul comes and preaches the gospel and the Bible says this about it. The word came not in word only, but also in power and with the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. 
Paul said, when I was among you and I spoke, God owned my message. And the testimony was embraced by the hearts of sinners. And it says of those people, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. How do you know you've had a revival? When a number of people do that very thing, turn from what they were involved with, trust Christ, and live a waiting life. That's exactly what the history of this particular church is all about. As the gospel came to them and turned them from these idols, it was not a question about where they were serving. Now, think about it. They met in houses. You know, we always think about these early church members. I wonder what kind of facility they had. I wonder if they had drums or microphones or pianos. I'm quite certain they probably didn't have many of these things, if any. They would gather up either in a church or a rented facility, and there might be several across the town. You see, travel was limited, and so they would gather up as God's people. They were God's people nonetheless, but this is a setting of which we find them. And so it is that the history of this church in its past can be seen in a powerful way. That can, at times, can it, be a challenge. It was none other than the apostle himself who spoke and taught and set the example at Thessalonica. So this church, as it considers its history or its past, has much to be excited about, doesn't it? The gospel success came while they were even being persecuted The Bible says concerning their reception of the gospel, it was in the midst of much conflict. Jason himself, who was the head of the Jewish synagogue, having received Paul and them, was himself persecuted, beat, and he had to pay some money, kind of like a bail, to get himself out. So this is the setting of this particular church. If you've ever experienced something where God moved in a unique and an exciting way, Don't you want to live like that all the time? You see, I'm much like Peter when when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's just build three tents and stay right here. He didn't want that to go away. Many have experienced a move of God like the Thessalonians experienced. Want that to continue in something. That might well be the way in which Christianity is lived out. Week in and week out, something exciting, something new, something powerful. Is that the way most church life looks like? We ought to pray that God moves in unique ways. History is sprinkled with the reality of God breaking in and saving many. We have all of those recorded events when God at different times comes into history and saves many at one given point. Most of the time, it's not that way. So as we consider Thessalonica, you can't consider it without its history and its past. Also in Thessalonica, you'll note that Paul's main ministry is about the future. He tells them that they were called out of the world and out of this kingdom into God's own kingdom and glory. Now just remember, this group is not unfamiliar with what it means to be in a kingdom that has glory. They've seen many things that would speak of power and might and a kingdom with glory. The point of Paul's preaching to this particular church was that there are, there's a future that awaits those 
who've embraced the Savior that's unbelievable. It's amazing. And it's to be longed for. As a matter of fact, that's the church, that's the description of those in the church. They were waiting for the appearance of Christ. And so it was with these words that he cast for these folks a great desire for the future. The hope that awaits those who are believing. The hope that awaits those who are Christian. Irregardless of your present circumstance or situation. There is awaiting you and I and those in Thessalonica a future which eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man what God's prepared for those who love him. My, my, how that ought to drive us, right? But what we're going to look at this morning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is what about the here and the now? What about it? Have you ever thought about that? You've been with folks who all, always love to talk about the past. Oh, I tell you, it used to be great. Things were amazing. Man, we had this and that, and it's almost as if there were no problems. They talk about the past in that way, right? Are those who are always waiting for something in the future. I can't wait when this happens or that happens or this comes to pass, or that comes to pass. Rarely, rarely, do we find ourselves like talking about the mundane and the boring and the day-to-day -day activities of life, right? Have you ever thought about something? Christ lived for nearly 12,000 days. We have recorded a few short days of his life. For 30 years, he worked and labored with his hands. Nobody knew that he was anything exceptional at that point other than Mary and those who had understood the uniqueness of his birth. He worked faithfully. He got up every morning. He labored in a workshop or building homes or whatever it was that in those days those carpenters did. He labored for 30 years. Brothers and sisters, in that 30 years, he was purchasing your redemption when he was doing the things that the world called mundane and simple. He wasn't out there in those moments, all the eyes of the world upon him. No, he was getting up, doing life faithfully, keeping the law daily, earning for you and for me a righteousness that we could not for ourselves. Don't just focus on the three years and forget the 30. Not a word is written of it much. A couple of days when he, or a day or two when he was 12, and early on when he was born. That's it. That's it. So, what about for the Thessalonican people who have now heard of things that are going to happen in the future that are amazing? A man that's going to come that's lawless and he's going to be empowered by Satan and do some wicked and unreal things. All of these things about their past and all of this about their future. How are they going to live in the present? That's a good question, isn't it? It's a good question for us. And so the writer Paul himself says some things that are certainly critical about this reality of living in the here and now. You see, it can be for us sometimes a great challenge, and it does turn many away. We know that to be true. 
They want something exciting. The word comes with, with great fanfare and all of a sudden life sets in and the Bible says in the parable of the soil and the seed, things begin to grow up around them and all of a sudden what happens? It chokes them out. All those days of excitement are gone and now it's just the here and the now and it's work and it's labor and it's raising kids and changing diapers and fixing meals and washing dishes and going to work and experiencing the challenges that have come since the fall. It's earning our living in the midst of thorns and thistles. Where's all the fanfare and the excitement? Where is it? What is it for those who are Christian in the here and now that we're to be about? You see, for many, they can sit on the couch and think of the past and the future and both have value. But you see, it's critical that in a day like this, we get up to the present demands. You labor, you get up. So the Scripture is calling us to get up. Get up, brothers and sisters. You can't sit around and think merely about the past nor merely about the future. You've got to get up. What does it say we ought to get up and do? Well, Paul's clear about that. You see, chapter 3 is about this almost curse word in our present culture. It's called labor. Woo! That's a challenge for many, isn't it? But the Bible talks about it in many ways. And the Bible commends labor. Even before the fall, we all know that our first parents were given a responsibility to work the garden and tend it. And we know that the Father, Christ says of the Father, He worketh until now and I work. So work, you see, is not a word that's unfamiliar in heaven. As a matter of fact, it characterizes the Trinity in every way. So we can celebrate that word and what it means. And it's Paul here who speaks to you and I in this way in the present day in our personal lives. What's left for those who've heard such great things about this man of lawlessness? Waiting to watch Christ return and sit around and marvel at his beauty. What are we going to do until that day occurs? What are we going to do until the man of lawlessness comes? Here's what we're going to do. Paul says, Here, here's what you do. You labor, and you labor in two ways. And I want you to note this. So the church ought to be about these two critical things. And when I mention the word, brothers and sisters, church, that's us, isn't it? The called out assembly of those who are trusting in Christ. So notice Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, it says this. Paul's concern for the church is that they would labor in prayer. Anytime you put the word labor in front of anything, it adds a sense of challenge or difficulty. Labor. Well, I'd rather have a job that's not, you know, physical labor. Have you ever heard that? So, as one of my uh, HVAC techs was laboring one day and... I, somebody just told me the story. It might have been somebody in church. I think it might have been Jeremy uh, the other night. We had some people working at their home, and his son was watching them labor, and he was crawling underneath the house, and he poked his head out from under the house. The tech did and said, look, son, go to college so that you won't have to work like this. And so Jeremy helped and corrected that situation. That's right, you see, because folks want some type of career, that they don't have to labor. Wow. <laughs> How opposite of the scriptures this. So do we want some kind of prayer life that's absent of what the Bible calls labor or work? It's almost as if we put those words in categories that whenever they're used, it's a negative context. But the Bible never does that. 
Paul speaks of striving and toiling and working and laboring. All the apostles and writers of Scripture magnify the very idea of this thought. So it is with Paul in this matter of prayer. And you'll note there, as was already read in chapter 3 in the first few verses, and he makes, he makes these statements and consider yourself in this light. His encouragement is this. Paul connected the success of the gospel with the faithful prayers of the redeemed. I believe without question that Christ is going to be successful in the spread of the gospel because of his own owning of it. But it's clear in the Bible that connected with that are the prayers of God's people. I don't understand that completely, but I know that the effectiveness of the gospel has a lot to do with the way you pray. Is that fearful? What if the number of folks that were converted in this city or this county were based on the way you prayed for them and you pleaded with God on their behalf? What if the conversion of your children rested on the prayers that you've put up to heaven on their behalf? What if the revival that would come in our community is based on your praying in your closet or on Wednesday night or with God's people? You see, I believe that Paul doesn't simply share this request of these people simply because he thinks it's a a good thing to say. I believe he understands the value and the necessity of God's people praying for the success of the gospel enterprise. Is this the way you view it? Do you view prayer as something you can simply do in a passing and uninterested way? Is it something that you can offer less than the best effort or energy in? Is it this way that I approach it? Or is it that Paul, like in this case, he asked for a specific design in their praying, that the word would speed Isn't this a funny thing? That the word would run. What kind of view comes in your mind? The word's got two legs and it's taken off running. His point was it would go unhindered. It would be successful. It wouldn't face roadblocks. But it would carry forward and be effective, embraced, and delighted in. It would speed forward and glorified or honored. Paul said his missionary endeavor was so important that the people of God must pray. You see, Paul didn't presume upon God. He saw it as our obligation to plead with God, our desire to line up with God's design. And you see, in this place, not only did Paul pray for the effectiveness of the word as it goes forward, but also the protection of God from the people who would destroy the gospel. Have you ever thought like that? You see, not only is it vital that the word goes forward, there's enemies to the word. Unless I think that I don't have a part in seeing missionaries protected against the desires of the devil, the Bible says here clearly, Paul's concern was that the people in the church at Thessalonica would pray for him as he preached the gospel. There were those who wanted to destroy him, stoning, killing, many other things like he'd already experienced. And it was the faithful prayers of God's people who prevented the wicked intentions of Satan
from being accomplished stopping the gospel. Do you view your prayers that important? Will the missionaries we've sent to other parts of the world be successful unless you pray or apart from your prayers? Will they be protected from somebody that would rob them and kill them? Will they be successful in the ways in which they communicate the gospel? Will the gospel be received by the unbelieving unless we pray? That's his point. And so he asked the church to labor in prayer, to work faithfully in prayer. You see, I believe the last few verses of that first section can be stated that this truth is really important here. You see, I believe it says there in verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Notice, he stated the importance of prayer. And then he goes into the benefit in your own life. Do you realize that your faithful praying on behalf of others gives you confidence in your battle against the devil. If you don't pray, you will not have confidence in the day of temptation and when the evil one comes to you. You must pray, brothers and sisters. I don't understand all of the implications of it. I simply know that the God of providence and the God that's sovereign has called his people to pray. You know, I know you and I are quite weak and know nothing beyond the moment. But God's called us to pray. And he said we ought to labor in it. And it's effective for the cause of the kingdom and the gospel. People will be saved because you pray. Missionaries protected because you pray. I hope if nothing else this morning as you go out those doors, you will remember your prayers are effectual and have a part in the cause of the kingdom. And so it says in the closing verses of that first section, we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Prayer being the point at this moment. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. You say, I'm not growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Brother and sister, are you praying? I tell you, when you're praying and you're intense in it and you labor over it and you're fervent with it, There's a uniqueness that comes about the love of God in your heart. You love sinners like He loves them. Your goal is His goal. The design of the conquest of the gospel is the purpose of your praying. And it becomes the design of your own life. The less you pray and the less you're fervent in it, the more like the world will be in the way we view things. I beg you, brothers and sisters, Let's together enter in. It's a difficulty for me as well. I want to give the scraps to God in prayer because nobody sees me. Let's give the best of God in prayer, right? And then what about this other idea that Paul has in this particular chapter? Not only are we to labor in prayer, but we're to labor at work. You say, well, preacher, I got a job. and Since I love Patrick so much and I know him well and he's in a group with me, Many of you will want a job like Patrick. We tease Patrick often. He works in a government. Are you, where are you at, Patrick? Uh, he's back there. He works in a government position, so we tease him. Say, Patrick, how many hours do you work this week? Got 40, but he worked two. And we know Patrick works harder than that, but we tease him with that. And so most of, often we look for a job that maybe we don't have to labor quite as hard in. 
or even statistics today would say that labor in general in our country has gone from something that was at a level of intensity back in the day to something now that most folks spend their times either viewing um, some type of social media or the like while they're at work, see. In this particular church, there were some folks called the loafers. What's a loafer? Anybody ever seen a loafer? <laughs> Not a penny loafer. I'm talking about somebody at work that's loafing. But this is somebody in church. Now, you know, I'm certain many of you would get great desire, and, and I'm probably the one that struggles here most. I can look outside these doors and find folks all over this country and this world who don't work and don't labor and like it like that and want somebody else to feed them. Right? We know that's true. That's not what this text is talking about. And as I look around this congregation, I almost think this text really doesn't fit us. Oh, but it does, right? As I look around from side to side, I see folks who labor and are diligent and are faithful in their jobs, and I thank the Lord for it. I don't know of anyone here who mooches off other folks just to live and eat and have their existence. That's a privilege in a church like this. You've taken up your responsibility and you've done it well. But let's think through what is it because we've got some young men in here who are going to be tempted to not work. And that's always a temptation in our flesh. So what does the lifestyle of a loafer look like? That's what the word means here. The idol, he's, he loafs around culturally. What is it that these people have grown up around? The Greeks hated physical labor. They looked down upon it. I mean, you were a physical laborer. You were a low-class person. They didn't view that in a high way nor esteem it at all. So these people grew up around that, right? There were slaves to do all kinds of things for different folks. The last thing they needed to do is something that had labor involved with it. As a matter of fact, considering what would the future look like for those who were Christian, why not I just... Uh, waste my time and have somebody else to help me? Why not we take up a love offering at church for my existence? I mean, that's sweet. I'll give you an opportunity to be blessed by the Lord and you can bless me because, you know, I'll stay home and take care of those things around the house. That's what was going on. You say, Does that, is that really? That's really what was happening. And Paul even addressed it in the first book of Thessalonica. Don't be idle, he said. Admonish the idle, he said. We ought to work and imitate what Paul left in the way of an example. So this is the kind of people that they were discussing at this particular point in the book. Paul says in the book of Titus this concerning the Cretans. Now, wouldn't this be nice to be said about those in Davis County? They're always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's what Paul said about the Cretans. This is what characterized them. As best I can tell about that statement, uh, that's what they looked like as a people in general. Okay, And so it was in the early days of the church, it wasn't uncommon to see lazy people or gluttons get saved and want to continue on in their laziness. So it's interesting how the Bible addresses this reality. Now remember... We can't separate this text from the fact that God saved these people by grace, correct? So before we get into this, here's the thing I want you to remember. Work is spiritual in one sense, right? 
Sometimes we will separate things that are spiritual from things that we call carnal or physical or earthly or worldly. That's not the case here, brothers. Your labor and work is a spiritual endeavor. And the mindset and the way in which you approach it is critical. And so it's, it's so vital that we don't take the cultural understanding of what get, God has given a biblical definition for, okay? Listen to that. Don't ever let the cultural culture define something that God's clearly defined in the Scripture. He's defined work and labor clearly in the Bible. He said six days, take off, work, labor. On the seventh, worship. That's what he said, wasn't it? And that's never been rescinded. That's never changed. And so it is for us that we're to be about the business of working, the Bible says, and that this particular group of people, as well as others in that particular culture, this is what they often did. They spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I saw a sad commentary about that when I arrived at Haiti years ago. My father and I, along with some others, went on a mission trip. <clears throat> and as we pulled into the compound where the missionary had his place, we saw him moving somebody out. And of course, my question was, why are you moving them out? It was the most amazing statement. He said, well, the husband's too lazy. He won't work. I said, what? No, he just wants to sit down at the local market and talk with the men all day. He had reminded him and admonished him and encouraged him. But what I watched First Thess 2 Thessalonians 3 enacted in the life of the missionary was a reality. A man who didn't have an opportunity for work like he was there at the mission complex was set outside because he was too lazy to work. He wanted to do what those in the day of the Thessalonican church wanted. They wanted to sit around and talk about important things. So that's what we find here. So that's the idea and the definition in 1 Thessalonians 3 of those who were idle or loafers here in the Scripture. But notice, what's the Christian response to those who are, in, who, who are lazy believers or idle believers? What's the Bible say to us, to these folks? Well, first, it's an amazing thing, 2 Thessalonians 3.6. It says, to avoid their company. To avoid their company. Have you ever thought like that? I don't need to be around a guy who's lazy, who won't take up his work responsibilities, who won't earn his own living and provide for his own family. I don't need to hang around him. I don't need to be in fellowship with him. Man, what a strong statement. Wouldn't you agree? Why do you think something like that might be said? The influence that person can have over others is tremendous. You see, when one person, the Bible says in Proverbs, gets away with a thing, it's very likely that many more who are naive or immature will do the very same. So what's the goal of the Christian? It is by his unwillingness to be in direct or intimate fellowship with that lazy brother, he would bring shame and therefore cause that brother to correct the error of his way. 
This is Christian living. This is what we're doing in the interim period of our conversion and waiting for his return. We're so concerned about one another, even with the reality of work, that we're willing with peer pressure to bring them back into a correct and right understanding of the Scripture. To honor God in the ways in which they work. That's what he said. So he says to command those who are faithful and diligent to avoid those who are lazy and idle. The second thing, this this is kind of amazing. Commit to the hunger plan. What's that? I'm not talking about the hunger games. I'm talking about to the hunger plan. How often have you heard this? And then one commentator said, this is probably something Paul heard around the workshop or around uh, the community or in the marketplace, well could have, where it said, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Wow, what a statement. How unkind and less than Christian is that statement? Correct? If you look a brother in the eye and say, brother, you're unwilling to work, I, you know, I don't care if you eat. What do you think he's going to look at you and say, you're a very spiritual-minded man? I doubt that's going to be his response. That's Paul's statement. He said, when I was with you, I made this very clear. If you're unwilling to work, you're not going to eat. It's not the responsibility of the church to make certain you have something to eat if you're unwilling to work. And so isn't it committed to us as Christians? That in 2 Thessalonians 3 and 10. You don't work, you don't eat. Able, healthy people should be expected to provide for their own needs. Well, you might be one that's really spiritual and you might say something like this. God's going to feed me. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's going to feed you by working with your own hands and feet, the Bible says. Very often, those who take this approach will make it a spiritual statement. Well, I'm going to stay at home and read commentaries. I'm going to stay at home and pray. Well, the Bible says you read commentaries and pray after you get home from work, right? As spiritual as someone might make it sound, the important part about this is that the responsibility given to the, you and I as God's people is to labor and work with our own hands, to provide for our own living. And so it is that if a man chooses not to do that, it's not your responsibility nor the church's to feed that person. The Bible says... His hunger, that's been used in the book of Proverbs, hunger is a motivating factor. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible? God uses this reality of hunger as a motivating factor. A man's appetite will drive him to labor, the Bible says in Proverbs. Ah, well, I wonder where Paul got this. He doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Proverbs in all the Bible speaks of the value of this very thing, right? And so we see that to be true. Notice a third thing. Here, here is something you want to keep firmly in your mind. Regard him as a brother and don't treat him as an enemy. What do I do with someone who's lazy or idle? You don't look down on him. You don't think he's less than a Christian or a Christian brother because of it. Paul's real clear in this matter. And it's important for us not to view him in a negative way, but to encourage him and admonish him in a Christian and biblical way. We don't view ourselves better than him simply because we work. Oh, I work 80 hours a week, so I'm a better Christian than you. Look, you'd only work 40. Some of you only work 30. You ain't good Christians. 
That's not the biblical model, right? We view one another as God's redeemed, and we view them like that, irregardless of their warts and their shortcomings. But what we're to do is to encourage them biblically and faithfully. What about a guy who works too much? Well, tell him. Help him. What about a guy who's willing to not work at all? Tell him. Help him. But regard him as a brother. So we're to be an encourager. That's what the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 3 and 12. Encourage them to get a job, use their money wisely to provide for themselves. Most often, what do we like to do to them? How do we like to counsel folks who aren't doing what they're supposed to do? I call it in the roundabout method. We talk about them to everybody else and hoping at some point it gets back to them. What's the Bible say we ought to do? Go to them and help them. Say, brother, you're not working. What's the problem? And then remove every healthy reason he has and give him the biblical reality and send him off and bless that man. One guy who's faithful with this is Wiley Early. He'll see anybody driving down the road or riding. I used to be working on different things, and Wiley brings somebody up, and he'd say, I found this guy over here want money, and I told him, come on, he could work, and we'd give him something. <laughs> Wiley's beautiful in the way in which he lives this out. Notice this. We need examples to imitate in this matter of work. Brothers and sisters, it's vital in anything that we have those we can see that are doing it correctly. Paul used of himself this reality. When I was among you, and this amazes me, he said, I toiled night and day, refusing to be a burden to any. I wouldn't eat anybody's food without paying for it, and I rejected to be a burden to anybody. I worked night and day. I don't know about you, but when I read that statement about Paul, that man was a go-getter in that sense. And he had biblical principles that ought to be imitated by us. And we need some of you men to be examples to these young men. Show them how to work. Talk about work in a positive way. Delight in the things you do with your hands. Rejoice in the work that God's given you. It's for the glory of God. Don't be men-pleasers. Don't only work when your boss is around. No, no. You work to the glory of God knowing that your inheritance is from Him. That's the biblical model. And as we understand Paul's example, he was consistent. And it was this challenge that you and I must consider as we close. Don't grow weary in it, brothers. You know, you might go out this morning, you might be fired up to work. My point is this, what we need as Christians is consistency. We need the farmer to go to the field every day. We need the Christian to lay his hands to the plow every day to work faithfully, consistently, continually, gratefully, thankfully. That's the way, you see, brothers and sisters, that the Bible calls us to. And I would encourage you that God, through it all, uses your faithfulness at work to bring glory to his name. Now, in a closing statement, Paul makes makes a statement of great importance to us. We've talked about work. Some of you in here might have the total wrong view. You're agitated. You're struggling. 
Some of you read what and listen to what Thad spoke about, about this man of lawlessness, and you're struggling, you're looking, you're thinking, you're reading books. Who could it be? I need to figure him out. Or maybe what Pastor Keith in the first chapter spoke about the return of Christ, and that kind of unsettles you. But notice how Paul closes this whole letter, and he shared many challenging things, and he asked us to leave like this. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. In every way, the Lord be with you all. Give you peace at all times in every way. What would you, know, what would you most likely share with him? Well, why in the world did you tell us about all of these unsettling things? What about Christians? What about the day-to-day life that you've been called to? Peace is the privilege of your lot. God has given us peace, brothers and sisters. He's the Lord of peace. Peace can reign in your heart and your work, irregardless of its difficulty. Peace can reign in our heart in this world, irregardless of its challenges. Peace can reign in our heart, irregardless of the circumstances we face. The Lord of peace will grant you all of these things according to the Scripture. Now together let us pray and ask the Lord for this very thing. Father, we are so thankful that you have instructed us in your word and given us these things for the day-to-day lives that we live. Oh, how we thank you for what you've done in the past and what you've promised in the future. Well, Lord, we're grateful for the peace we enjoy in the present. We're thankful for the peace we have when we work and labor and pray. Thank you, Lord. That you don't leave your people, nor will you ever forsake them. And in this we give you thanks and praise for your glorious name. And in your name we ask it. Amen.